Today's passage is Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, and it's on page 744 in your pew Bible. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. This is the final in a series on passionate Jesus learning from his Emotions. I've appreciated the response to it. I've appreciated how we have wound up breaking up these sermons into parts because of how broad these themes are. And that speaks to how much the Gospels talk about Jesus feeling things, emoting over things, and grief is no exception. Why do we close out with grief? Why talk about grief on Palm Sunday? Because we've been talking about and singing about and even witnessing the Palm Sunday symbolism of the Hosannas and the Thanksgiving. It's because it's not long after the triumphant entry into Jerusalem that Jesus laments, weeps, grieves over Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing Jesus uses this maternal imagery to show how painful his grief is over the indifference of the people, how they have fickle hearts, hardened hearts, dulled ears. And it's his love for the people that compels his grief. Later on, and as Heather just read a moment ago, it says, As he came near and was in the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And he goes on to predict the destruction of Jerusalem that indeed occurs some 40 years later. Jesus grieves over people whose hearts are hardened, who are indifferent. And he grieves over that with people today, but let me personalize it all the more. He grieves for you and with you as you grieve. That's really where we're going. Because of Jesus, God grieves with us. Jesus, as you know, identified strongly with the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Do you remember how he is described there? Keep in mind, Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of this suffering servant in Isaiah 53, who is described as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And he's acquainted with yours. And he knows your grief, feels it with you, grieves with you. I wonder if you've ever had a particular response to something difficult, a moment of sorrow and mourning that you have experienced. Obviously, we sometimes have tears. Sometimes we even are angry and we rage, perhaps. Sometimes I've been with people who have the weight of grief upon them and they they sigh, a heavy sigh. Do you know that Gospels record Jesus doing just that? Go to Mark chapter 7. Jesus sighs over a man who has the plight of blindness, who he winds up healing. Go to Mark chapter 8. He takes a deep breath of grief over the Pharisees' shallow 
faith. Jesus felt the weight of grief, and he feels the weight of your grief. And it wasn't simply a sigh that he felt earlier on when he was at Bethany. And he sees all those who were weeping over the loss of their friend and his friend whose name was Lazarus. Edekrusen ha Yesu. Edekrusen ha Jesus. It's, it's the shortest verse in all of scripture and you know it. It's striking because of how brief it is. And it stands out because it tells us that Jesus grieves. What is it? Jesus wept. Stark confirmation in two simple words that he grieves. And by his grieving, we understand that we follow a God who grieves. I love how N.T. Wright, the great New Testament scholar, puts it as he comments on John chapter 11 on the resurrection of Lazarus. But first of all, he focuses on Jesus weeping. And he wrote this. He said, when we look at Jesus, not least when we look at Jesus in tears, we are seeing not just a flesh and blood human being, but the word made flesh, the word through whom all things were made, weeps like a baby at the grave of his friend. Only when we put away our high and dry pictures of who God is and replace them with pictures in which the word of God is crying, and he cries with the world's crying, only then will we discover what the word God really means. And what the word God means is the one who created all things also cries with us and sighs with us and hurts with us when we are hurting. We follow a God who identifies with our grief and hurts for and with us. And nowhere did he experience that more intensely, of course, than in the Garden of Gethsemane. You go to Matthew 26 and it says Jesus was grieved and agitated. And then he turns to Peter, James, and John, and says, I am deeply grieved even to death. And, and, and at that point, he's not just grieving over his impending death, he's grieving over the cruelties of this world, the injustices of this world, the people who don't understand him, the pain and sorrow and brokenness of this world, yes, that brings you and I grief. He's grieving over that at that moment in Gethsemane as well. He grieves over our grief. And he understands your grief more than anyone. And because he understands your grief, he made the greatest sacrifice. I remember a long time ago hearing Queen Elizabeth II, of all people, give a fantastic, succinct quote about grief. And she said this, grief is the price we pay for love. Say that again. Grief is the price we pay for love. We love someone deeply then we lose them. And that's so painful, intensely painful. But I want you to take that a step further because grief is the price God the Father paid for his love for us. It's the price he paid when he sent his only son, whom he loved so much more than anything in the world, and yet sent him to die. It's also the price Jesus paid in his love for us as he agonized in Gethsemane. And yes, Look toward that imminent suffering and death. And yes, it's the price he paid when his body was broken and he shed his blood for us on the cross. There was no greater price that was ever paid. So grief is the, grief is the price we pay for love. But nobody paid that price more than Jesus. And there's no more powerful symbol for us than this meal right here. 
because it really shows us that he broke his body, shed his blood for those of us who sometimes find ourselves in the throes of grief. But he was in the throes of such sorrow more than anyone else and broke his body, shed his blood for you and for me. And with that, it is no doubt time to partake of the meal. And we will do so in a minute, as we usually do, where you exit out on that side, this section. You guys come down here, go back to where you're seated. You all go to the wall, come to this table and partake. But first of all, let's have a prayer. Grief is the price we pay for love, O God, and yet your very son paid that more than anyone. And we observe that now. We observe the pain and the grief and sorrow that he faced. And we give thanks, O God, also that he identifies with our sorrows even now, our frustrations, our doubts, our uncertainties. Whatever causes us to grieve, to either anticipate loss or to to have pain over a loss from a long time ago. This meal, O God, reminds us that you know brokenness and you know our brokenness. And so we give thanks for the bread and for the cup. We pray these things in your name. Amen. As you come forward, you're welcome to take the bread and the cup. Go back to where you're seated and take your time and spend some time in prayer. And then when you feel led to partake of the elements, you do so when you feel led. The table awaits you. Come forward. Haste the day when the faith shall be sight. Yeah, because of Jesus, God grieves with us, but because of Jesus also, our faith strengthens us as we grieve. Yes, Jesus wept, but that was not the end of the grief story at Bethany, was it? There was another chapter. Now, Martha did not see it, and I've talked about this before, that he kept telling her, your your brother's going to rise again, and she doesn't really get it. She says, well, maybe one day. No, I mean right now. And then he tells her, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she's, oh, yes, I believe, Lord. You're the Christ, the Son of God, the incarnation. I know whatever you're saying is going to happen. And then he says, roll the stone away. And what does Martha say? Uh, He's been in there four days. He's going to stink. Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. Lord, he stinks. Do you and I ever find ourselves there when our faith is really put to the test? And we fail to realize that there is another chapter. It's not over yet. And Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And then he prays to God and says, I thank you that you're here with us. I'm not praying for myself, but for these other people so that they would believe. And then Lazarus comes out. There's another chapter. The grief doesn't last. If the Bible tells us nothing else, it tells us that the story is not finished yet. When you're facing grief of any kind, that grief is not the last chapter. Cleopas and his friend forgot that on the road to Emmaus. They don't recognize Jesus, I think in part because he doesn't look quite like he did in his early form. But I think all the more they are so lost in their intensity of grief that they just don't see him. They're so in the throes of grief that they don't 
recognize him. And yet Jesus, who is a stranger to them at the moment, comes along and opens up the scripture to them. It shows them this had to happen, and the story is not over. There's another chapter. And finally, they recognize him, and they realize there's a joyful future ahead. Now, sometimes it's hard for you and I to see that future when we are grieving. Sometimes it's hard for us to see that tomorrow. Kifa Simpangi was a pastor in Uganda during the terrible Idi Amin years in the 1970s. He was such a brutal Dictator, And he and his family barely escaped the brutal oppression that was going on over there at that time. And they made their way over to Philadelphia, where a group of Christians ministered to them. And they were not there very long when, and this just seems so mundane, where Kepha's wife came up and said, Honey, tomorrow I'm going to go buy some clothes for the children. And then they both gasped together, just And it stunned them, and they began to weep. And people who overheard this little exchange asked them, what's wrong? And they said, it's been so long since we've used the word tomorrow. We've lived for so long with this threat, this constant threat of harm and death, that we fail to realize that there is a tomorrow. They would even speak about tomorrow. Sometimes it's hard to trust in tomorrow, but indeed it's coming. Even as we grieve, there is tomorrow. We talked recently from Romans 8 that sometimes we might not see the reason why something occurred, and it might be something that caused loss for you. It might be something that's causing confusion or frustration or disappointment or whatever it might be. Yet in the long run, come the future, we will find the purpose in it. That's the promise that you find over and over again in Romans 8. And hence the second beatitude, the very second beatitude Jesus shares in the Sermon on the Mount is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be, they will be comforted. By and by, they will be comforted. I was introduced recently to one of my new very favorite songs by a Christian singer named Josh Garrels, and it's called Farther Along, and the refrain is, Farther Along, we'll know all about it. Farther Along, we'll understand why. So cheer up, my brothers. Live in the sunshine. We'll understand this all by and by. And that's good news, but wait, Jim, what do we do in the meantime? Because I am in pain right now. I'm enduring this grief, yes. And when we're enduring that grief, sometimes you and I need to go meet Jesus where he was grieving the most. When I was in seminary in Louisville, my theology professor was a brilliant man named Frank Tupper. And I saw him hammering out his theology that spring semester that I had him in class because as he was teaching us, his wife Betty, who was in her very early 40s, was dying of cancer. And, and you saw him sometimes try to teach, and sometimes he would just grip the podium from which he was lecturing because it was just so hard for him. And she passed on later during that very semester. But I'll never forget the next fall in chapel, he got up to preach. And he said, I know many of you want to know, how did I make it through? And this is what he said. He said, whenever I was overcome, or even now, whenever I'm overcome with grief and despair with sadness, with borderline depression, I find myself going to the garden. I find myself going to Gethsemane, and I find Jesus there. I find him in Gethsemane, and I go to the garden, and I let him grieve with me and for me. And thank God he is a God who grieves and is there for us when we seek him out. He is in pain 
sensing the pain, going through the pain with us. Sometimes you and I need to join him in the garden, but not forgetting that while you're there, you can trust the reality that farther along will understand all this by and by. If you don't hear anything else, remember this, because of Jesus, grief gives birth to joy. University of Dayton was in the news because of how well they did in the NCAA tournament. I don't know much else about Dayton, Ohio, but I do know that it was the hometown of a wonderful poet named Paul Lawrence Dunbar. After he died, his mother kept his room in the house exactly as it was on the day that he died. Unfortunately, little did she know, he wrote his final magnum opus poem that was sitting there on his desk. But she kept it as a shrine of sorts and just didn't want anybody ever to go in there. And because of that, once this mother died, they went in there and found what they knew was probably his magnum opus because they heard about him writing it, but it was blank because the sun had bleached out most all the ink and they really couldn't read any of it. The poem, therefore, was gone. Now, what's the point? If we stay fixated in our grief, in a sense, make a shrine out of it, we miss out on so much of life. We miss out on so much, and it's so much that even those for whom we grieve, those whom we miss, they would want us to get on with things as well. John 16, Jesus is speaking to the disciples in the upper room, spells out what is soon going to happen to him, and he says this, because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Have you ever felt the weight of grief to where it just fills your heart, and it weighs you down. It's a hard place to be. But Jesus doesn't stop them from feeling the grief. He doesn't doesn't forbid them from feeling the grief. He doesn't shelter them from feeling the grief. Rather, he understands that these are natural emotions that we feel in the brokenness of this world as it is. But Jesus promised something at the very beginning of his Sermon on the Mount. Again, that second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The word there for mourn can mean grief, and it's the most intense word for grief that you find in all of Scripture. There are nine words that are used for grief at different points. That's the most heart-wrenching, soul-rattling word for grief that you find in all the Bible. And yet Jesus says, you will be blessed, you will be comforted in spite of your intense grief in the presence. And that's what the disciples are feeling at that point. They are filled with with grief. Their hearts are filled with grief. But then Jesus breaks into this wonderful analogy. If there's anything I want you to remember, it's this right now. John chapter 16, verses 20 through 22. Let me just read it. It's just a beautiful analogy. Jesus has just told them, this is soon going to happen to me. I know you're grieving. And then he says this, I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born in the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. One of the great passages, I think, in all of Scripture, Jesus uses this analogy of childbirth to assure his disciples, yes, you have pain now, you have grief now, but it will lead to joy. 
And there's a pain and sorrow now that can be overwhelming, but you will come to a joy through the resurrection that is so overwhelming and that, that totally transcends that which is causing you pain to the point that you'll forget the grief that you have been knowing. And we know that one day, as Scripture promises, there will be no more weeping, no more pain, no more illness, no more loss, no more heartache, no more doubt, no more confusion, no more chaos. He ends it all with that fabulous word in John 16, 33. I've told you these things so that you may have peace. In the world you will have trial, tribulation, troubles. But be of good courage. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Yet Jesus wept. He weeps for us and with us. But one day, the weeping... Ends. And so Jürgen Moltmann, the greatest theologian of the 20th century, put it very succinctly. He's written all these books on the theology of hope, but he said, if I had to whittle it down, I'd whittle it down to this. God weeps so that one day we may laugh with him. And with that word, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want us just to have a bit of guided meditation here. First of all, I want you to hear these wonderful words from 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. Marvelous words of comfort. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ so also our comfort abounds through Christ. I wonder what weight you are carrying right now that is grieving you. I want you to take just a moment, and whatever it is that you're struggling with, some sense of loss, maybe despairing over someone who's no longer there, or some transition in your life that has caused you grief and sorrow and frustration. Whatever it is right now, I want you to take a moment, and whatever is weighing you down right now, just in this moment, silently lift that up to Jesus. Go there in the garden with him. Go to Gethsemane with him. Let him be there for you. us in our pain. I want you to take another moment, and if you know someone, because no doubt there's someone who's a part of this church body or someone you know back home, someone you know somewhere who is really in the throes of a difficult time, maybe having lost a loved one or going through a time of uncertainty, some physical malady, whatever it might be, pray for that person right now.
Lord, we know you hear our pain, but help us to be your disciples and hear one another's pain, comforting each other with the comfort with which we've been comforted, just as your word says. We thank you that we can lean on one another and all the more that we can go to the garden and lean on you, realizing again the price you paid, the grief that you endured for us. But that's not all of it, oh God, and we we know that, we trust that there's another chapter, and because of that, we have 10,000 reasons to sing your praises, and so as we do so, may we do so with hearts that might be somewhat heavy due to whatever it is we're facing in this life now, but also hearts that are willing in faith to sing out in praise to you, oh God. Help us to do that now. Lord, we pray for anyone who might feel led to make some kind of decision to come forward to be baptized, to profess faith in you, to move church membership, whatever. If anyone feels led to do that, pray that they would feel prompted to do that as we sing. Otherwise, oh God, may we sing with fullness of heart, realizing we have 10,000 reasons and more to give praise to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.